You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. So we're looking at this idea of how do we grow in trust with God, and we're going to look at today how he does that through our relationships. And um, the portion I'm going to read today in a little bit Basically, as if you remember from last week, if you're here, we're looking at the nation of Israel. They've been given instructions to enter this new land of Canaan and to possess this land. And they're led by this man, Joshua. And to the point that we're going to be looking at today, they have experienced the great victories already that God promised would happen back in chapter 1, which we looked at last week. In chapter uh, 6, verse 27, the end of it, it really describes Joshua and correspondingly Israel's state. Verse 27 says... So the Lord was with Joshua, as he promised, and his fame was in all the land. Basically, yo, their stuff don't stink. They're like big ballers here. They can do no wrong. They are this small nation, but they're going in and tearing it all up. And, and we're not going to read it today, but I would encourage you to read it on your own. Open source Bible, good book, read it. Chapter 6 talks about this whole story of Jericho. And I would encourage you to read it because it's amazing. Basically, the people of Israel, they go in and, and they're able to take over this place, but they don't do it because they're good fighters. Here's what they do in a nutshell. God says, yo, walk in there and keep walking. Walk around that city. Walk around the walls. Make a lot of noise. Yell. And, and the walls are going to come down and you're, you're going to take that city. It's ridiculous. God is showing it was supposed to be an object lesson that this victory was God's. And as long as they did it his way, his power would be known, even in their ridiculous lack of resources. So having that in mind, let's go into chapter 7 and see what God would say to us. Verse 1, it says, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. So when we say devoted things here, usually a soldier in war, they would share in the spoils of war. Whatever they found in that city, they would share that, but not at Jericho. God had made very clear to the army Everything was to go to God. That's what devoted meant. It was all to go to God, and he could do with it as he wished. And in this case, it was to be put into the treasury. But one of the soldiers, this man Achan, he took some of what God specifically commanded them not to. And God esteemed. But look how his anger is directed in verse 1. People of Israel broke faith in regard to devoted things. And anger the Lord burned against the people of Israel. As much as one man, Achan, disobeyed God's word... God seems to hold all the people collectively responsible for this transgression. Let's keep reading. Verse 2, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shabarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. 
And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So Israel has just had this tremendous battle in the city of Jericho. So now they're sending scouts for the next city. It's much smaller. This is easy as cake. This, this should be a no-brainer. So the scouts say, yo, we don't even need the whole army. Just send a few of them. This would be like, the go- for you NBA heads, this would be like the Golden State Warriors saying, oh, wow. Okay. Man, we were having to play like the Sixers, who are an amazing team. But, oh, now we got the Knicks. Oh, j- just send like Durant, and we'll be okay. It, that's what they're basically saying. We don't need everyone. We don't need everyone here. And they get trounced. They get obliterated. They get smacked around. And we see Joshua's response when faced with this hardship. Oh, why did we even bother? Woe is us. And look how God answers him here in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. I don't know if he said it like that, but get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up! Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. I love God's response in verse 10. He's like, oh, heck no, this ain't about me. Don't, I, this is not my lack of faithfulness. I'm still with. You have done something wrong. There are devoted things you made. You all have done what you're not supposed to do. And notice again, the constant referral to the offending party in a corporate address. Verse 11, he says, Israel, they. Verse 12, people of Israel. Verse 13, consecrate the people and so on. He talks about them as a group. So verse 16, Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, son of the, of the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Achan's not in a good place. Um, And we'll get back to what this means for him personally in a little bit here. But if you notice throughout the story, 
There are individuals mentioned, but they're always mentioned in context of the whole. In a way, God is showing us he didn't just see one man, Achan. He he saw Israel. He saw his children. He saw the collective people. That's why even though one person sinned, the repercussions fell upon the entire community. Achan's sin didn't just affect him, though it would personally, but it also affected his whole community. And you know, for some of us, this this comes a little naturally to put this together, but being in America, we are ingrained, for better or for worse, to view life from an individualistic mindset. I'm not saying that's a pro or a con, it's just what it is. In a sense, um, I create my own rules, I create my own reality. And maybe in another way, we can look at larger societal, societal moves away from family, kind of a community-oriented society, mostly agrarian farming, to more of an individualistic, self-driven, and focused mentality. And I'm, again, I'm not saying that's a fully good or a fully bad thing, um, but I'm putting it out there that that's probably the reason why for some of us, it's just more natural to view life through this prism of me rather than we. Here's the thing. For us in the church, one of the repercussions of an individualistic framework to life is that even the nature of the Christian life can primarily be viewed through what God does for us personally. Um, so, I mean, just an example, when you, when you see um, how to share the good news of Jesus, a lot of times it's framed in terms of What can God do for you? Or what's God's plan for you? And I'm not saying that God doesn't have a plan for you. He does. But if if you're a follower of Jesus, there's a transformation that takes place. And and it's so much more than just becoming a little bit more moral, whatever that looks like for us. But when you become a Christian, it changes not just your thinking— but it actually changes your being. It changes who you fundamentally are. That you die to yourself and you live to Christ and and you're birthed into this new reality. And this is not in the slides, but uh, some verses that describe this new reality. It's from Romans chapter 8, verse 14, which says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And what this is saying is that a transformed life, it's not just about what it means for you and for your eternal destiny. I mean, that's important. That's that's really important. But guys, that's not all it is. Transformation is that the very essence of your relationships has been changed. You are adopted by God the Father, and He is a good Father. And for some of you who have not had the best fathers on this earthly life, that should bring you much hope that there's a dad who loves you like crazy and welcomes you into family. But here's the thing if God is our Father, it's also true that those who are similarly adopted as we are are also now our siblings, brothers and sisters. It it means that you've been spiritually birthed into this new family, into this new community of fellow weary travelers following God in this journey. We're all in it together. We're one hodgepodge of a family here. 
and each of our journeys impacts one another's journeys. Maybe I would say it in the, we have been given a whole new set of relationships so that we might actually know God the Father more fully. And if you've been doing this Jesus thing for a while, some of you are pros, right? You're like, man, I came out of the womb singing praise, right? Um, You might be expecting this is where I really start to hammer into the real benefits of growing to know Jesus in community. And where you start, if you don't like being in a small group, you're like, all right, 10 minutes. Okay, just tell me how great it is to be in a small group. Um, That, yeah, you can't do it alone because you're going to learn so much more about God if you're with others. Especially in such a mosaic of different cultures like this. There's no way you can know God in the way everyone here knows. So join a group and walk together. Have some nice snacks and learn the multifaceted, beautiful glory of God. I believe that's all true, by the way. I I, I do believe that's true. Uh, But I think what I learned from this story that we're looking at today is that being part of this new community of God is also very complicated. And maybe we don't really talk about that part as much. Um, I mean, it's messy for the people who are in this story. Because most of the people in this story, they're being held accountable for what someone else, Aiken, did to disobey God. I mean, I'm imagining if I was like Bob. People, you know, Bob is in Israel, right? And he's sitting there and God's laying into them and he's listening. And and he's like, you have devoted things. I'm like, what? I, I, I didn't take no devoted things. Who did? And he starts breaking it down by faith. Aiken? This is all because of Aiken? Seriously? I didn't do anything. My tribe didn't do anything. My family didn't do anything. I sure as heck didn't do anything. Aiken? And, and we're all supposed to suffer because of Aiken? Put it another way. Um, Someone that God has called them to walk together with on this journey is the very reason why they are in their distress. And this story, it gives us a significant point about God and how he views his corporate people and their responsibility to one another. He doesn't just see the individual. And he surely sees the individual. We have scripture that tells us he knows every hair on your head. That's knowing the individual. But he also sees the collective. As much as one person is responsible, they are also in another way collectively responsible. And I've actually used this same scripture and this story when I do teaching in some other settings. Um, when, when I give examples about communal responsibility in the scriptures. And one of the fiercest debates I've observed among some Christians is when you talk about things like systemic sin or generational sin. Oh, you want to get some Christians mad, just start using those words, right? In our nation, probably some of the realist examples, um, it's centered around maybe some of the evil perpetrated against African slaves and the resulting atrocities. Or or maybe towards Native Americans whose very lives were torn asunder and, and they're still bearing the impact of that injustice. And tragically, here's the thing that's kind of cringeworthy. It's a lot of these things were done by people who were doing it in Jesus' name. That's the cringeworthy part, right? Um, So here's the thing. Not too many people, unless they're like hardcore racists, not too many people I've met get heated about the actual injustice of the past. They're like, yeah, that was evil. That was horrible. That was, I can't believe Christians did that. I can't believe people used the scriptures to justify the evil. And I'm so glad that we're past that now as a people. 
but, but it's when you introduce the idea of possible generational sin and the effects of maybe sin that's maybe never truly been repented of. For example, like slavery and its accompanying effects and how that might still affect us today as the church and how we need to be accountable in a way. I mean, for some people, maybe for some of us, that's really offensive. Some people get really mad. Uh, Some people get steamed at this idea. What do you mean that I need to pay for something that I never did? I I didn't choose anything like that. My family wasn't involved. Why are you lumping me in with this whole group of people? I I had nothing to do with that. And this is where I usually get those really um, pretty hate mail that I'm like some neo-Marxist and man, I wish America would go to socialism and I'm what's wrong with America. Maybe, maybe I'm what's wrong with America. I'm not saying I have anything against personal responsibility. I'm I'm actually a big believer in personal response. I actually think as a nation, we need a little bit more personal responsibility. And in this story, we see that God does call out his whole people but there's also a call to personal accountability. He does eventually call out Achan. So it's collective, but there's also personal accountability. So we're not saying people don't need to own what they do. And I want to be very clear in case you misunderstand. Each of us will have to make an account for our own thoughts, our own decisions, our actions. We can't always place the blame on someone else. It might be other people's fault, but we also have to own those things. Ultimately, no one can do that for you. And you can't do that for one another. You can't repent of someone else's sins. Does that make sense? you got to own your own. But here's my point. All of that doesn't negate the relationships that God has placed us in that are critical for our Christian faith. Those two things can work together. In fact, I'm going to suggest we can never truly say that we, meet, we know what it means to follow God fully if we don't know him through our relations with one another. So when we talk about community like this, obviously, we can see the positive of this. Some of that you've seen. You're like, well, yeah, that makes sense. You know those people? There's some people in this church. Man, I've had the worst day. But when I see them, their face just like reminds me of God. And, you know, I can be stinking it up. I can be walking like the devil. But when I see them, I just feel like coming to the Lord. And I feel grace. And I feel forgiven. And I want to be holy. Oh, man, when they just sing. Oh, man, I feel like I hear the angels. Oh, yeah, I can see how people help me to know God more. Praise God for them. Um, I'm not really talking about those folks. I'm talking more about those people who aren't like that. Um, and I don't know if we're allowed to say things like this in church. There are some people in church you're just not going to like. I'm not saying they're not Christians. They can very much love Jesus, but you and them may just not get along naturally. There are just some people, whether they know it or not, they make your journey harder. They make you loving God more difficult. And I know we're not supposed to say things like that in church because we're all supposed to be like kumbaya, hold hands, and we don't know anything bad about it. There are some people that drive you crazy. You can't go on their social media because their Facebook makes you want to cuss in things you've never said before. And you're like, seriously, they love Jesus? And they're probably thinking the same thing about you. Some people will just drive you batty. They just will. You know why? Because we all broken. When you bring broken people together, we're broken together. Just more brokenness. 
It's like when I talk to people who aren't married yet, who are interested in marrying one another, and, and I ask them, so why do you want to get married? And if their answer is, because we want to be happier. I'm like, yo, we got like eight sessions of premarital to get into this, okay? Because you put in two sinners, a big sinner sandwich. It going to get crazy in that house. Think about what happens in a church then. We bring all of our mess together. And the reality is, you got mess in your life that 99% of the people in here don't even know. They just think you're a little quirky. And they don't know all the hurt you're bringing in here, all the pain that's causing you sometimes to act the way you are. Again, not taking away personal responsibility. Some of us are just broken, right? What's the whole hurt people hurt people? That's us. A whole church full of it. Hurt people hurt people. And sometimes we hurt one another. Just like a family. Here's the thing. When you encounter difficult people, you do have a choice if you're a Christian. When you encounter difficult people, you do have a choice. One, you can put yourself in a place where your heart starts to get hardened. You can be walking faithfully in a church, and when you will encounter difficult people, hard people, you can have a choice to say, you know what, I guess just some people aren't meant to get along. I'll just kind of ignore them. I'll pray for them, which is like a Christian way to say I'll pray gospel about them to someone else. But I'll just ignore them. I mean, just because we're Christians doesn't mean we have to like each other. But if you're not careful, the enemy can start to harden your heart against that person. Start to plant seeds where you just bitterness can start to form in there. And you start thinking, think about some people. What's the first thought in your mind when you picture their face? If it's not, oh, my brother in Christ, but it's something else. It could be a sign that you've been harboring things about them. And if you're not careful, those things, it's that Hebrews uh, idea of the, the hardening of your heart. That can happen. So be careful about that. But we have a choice in that. You can have a choice to let things go that way, or it can point you to God. Those people can point you to God. At least for me, and I don't know, I know from y'all, if you're new here, you think, man, that's like, he must be a saint himself, right? They got like, I am, man, sometimes I look at my heart, I'm like wrecked. Because as I look at myself, and maybe you can identify, there is nothing like people's sin. There is nothing like their shortcomings. There is nothing like their personality quirks. There's nothing like their Enneagram style. There's, I mean, heck, sometimes even their voice to surface the self-righteous Pharisee lurking with inside of me. Sometimes the people who are the hardest to get along with personally are the ones who allow the surface within me where I start to feel really good about myself. I, well, I think I am, but it's not. You're really arrogant, self-righteous. Maybe a good way to think about it. If we start to believe that there are certain people who need more grace than I do, it could be a sign that we have lost sight of the gospel. If we start to think of some people and they come to your mind like, oh, well, I'm glad they come to this church because they sure need Jesus. Oh, man, their life is a mess. The way they do their marriage, the way they talk, the way they spend money. Oh, the way that they're not edifying. Oh, the way they don't serve. Oh, the way they're not loyal. The way they're not responsible. Oh, man, the ways that they're slovenly. Oh, man, oh, Jesus, I pray you would do something in their life because they sure need you. They might, but if we start to think people need Jesus a lot more than we need Jesus and his grace, it could be a sign that we have lost sight of God's gospel for you as well.
Because your relationships within this community, especially the hard ones, will be God's invitation to receive his grace. As silly as that sounds. The hardest people in this church that you have a problem walking with, they will probably be the most effective people at pointing you to your need for God's grace. And I wish I could just point out examples from here and just have you stand up and share it because that would make my life easier. But I'm the pastor, so I'll share from my own heart, my own experience, because y'all sinless, right? But for me, I have seen how, um, in the end, sometimes the way I have trouble with people, it's not ultimately because I'm so holy moly. It's my own idol surfacing within my heart. Ultimately, it shows me that there are a whole lot of other things that I consider more important than people. So I love productivity. Uh, I don't have the energy to produ- be productive as much as I want anymore because I'm getting older, but I still love productivity, and I think that's a good thing. But what I also see is that there are some unhealthy versions of it that can be idolatrous, where I can worship getting things done. I can worship being efficient. And I can see that I'm worshiping those things because it shows in my frustration with people if I feel like their unproductivity is making my productivity not happen. And what God has helped to reveal in my heart is, wow, Dan, ooh, you really love productivity more than you love people sometimes. That's, that's not good. You need grace. You need grace. Or, um, I like to look good. I'm not just saying physically, because you're like, well, you got some work to do. I'm not, I'm not just saying physically. I like to have good reputation. Um, I like to be thought highly of. One of the evil things I saw surfacing in my life, I think I've gotten better, but especially earlier on in our church, is if things were happening because of people's lack of uh, forthrightness or lack of follow-through or just uh, maybe in my mind incompetence, I would get really mad because if I dug deep enough, it made me look bad because I based my identity on how this looked. So if people didn't do what they were supposed to do, if they're late, if they're a little sloppy in execution, I'd find myself getting kind of upset and ticked off. And God had to remind me and reveal my idol saying, yeah, you know what, Dan? It's, it's okay to want to look all right, but you've elevated to God's status. And for you, you love your appearance more than you love the people. And because of that, you're not recognizing right now the shame you've put that person in because they look at your face and they can tell they have not measured up to your standards. And you're crushing them rather than giving them grace. So for me, I'll be honest, I love the people who give me all the Facebook likes. I love the people who tell me how amazing my sermons are and, uh, like, it's, it's the best thing ever. I love the people that tell me, have you lost weight? You look real. I, I love those people. But you know who God has used to really root out and grow me the most are the people who have not been that. It's been the relationships that are actually a little harder. It's been the situations that have revealed the things I worship. And it leads me to the grace of God. It shows me that as much as I pray, and it's changed my prayer. Here's how my prayer used to be. And I felt fully justified doing this. I would pray, Lord, help them to be better. Lord, let them be able to be a better servant of you. 
Lord, help them to maximize their gifts. Help them to take seriously your kingdom. Lord, help them to love you more than the things of this world. Parentheses, like I do. A lot of self-righteousness. Whereas now, if God has shifted my prayer to not so much, I still pray that y'all do things better. That's okay. But I pray, Lord, help me to love them more no matter what. Lord, help me to support and encourage and be in front, leading by serving. Lord, help me to be able to understand, give me spiritual insight to recognize that what I see with my eyes is not even the full reality of what's going on there, but there's a lot of hurt there. Lord, give me greater empathy. Lord, help me to understand more. And God will use our hard relationships to reveal how much more we still need grace in our lives. So I mentioned Achan being accountable. Let's see what happens. Verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. This is Achan. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen and donkeys, and sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. So, yes, God called collective judgment upon the people of Israel, but someone still had to pay. Personal responsibility, personal accountability. We see it here, and Achan did. In the end, Achan did the crime, Achan paid the time. And and I guess there could be a response from a community like ours here at the village. When we encounter challenge, just I'm being real, sometimes we will hit road bumps and we can point to the person who caused it. We can know the reason things are happening. And, And I guess the temptation is, well, it's because of this person's sin. Let's just bounce them. Let's just get rid of them. And obviously we're not going to kill anyone today. But I think if we're not careful, churches have a similarly destructive way to get rid of people. We call it judgment. We can call it condemnation. We can label it gossip. Maybe it looks like ridicule. Maybe a little bit more under the surface, but like contempt. Like we're not outwardly hostile. But there's like a, you can tell. Or maybe we treat people like the weak link or the reason that we're not growing like we think we should. So if we just get rid of the problems like they did with Achan, we've established that it's their sin that's affecting the whole family, so let's just get rid of them. But I think if that's where we go, the question we need to ask ourselves is, well, then who's our Achan? Who's our Achan here? And if we are being humbly honest, we have to say, Dan Hyun is the Achan. You are the Achan. You're the Achan. You're the Achan. You're the Achan. We got a whole room full of Achans here. For all of us in different ways, we are prone to concern ourselves with our own lives, even at the expense of others, whether outwardly visible or not. And, And as easy as it is to think about those people who have made your life hard, the reality is you've probably done the same thing to someone else, and you might not even be aware of it. We are all Achans. We are all the guilty ones. 
But the gospel, the reason why gospel is good news, it says that rather than the guilty one dying from the punishment, rather than you and I bearing the cost of our self-centeredness, our inwardly focused, even if we sacrifice, ultimately, the innocent one gives his life. And that's Jesus Christ, our hero. Rather than the Aikens having to give our life, the Christ has given his life. That Jesus loves and dies for individuals, of course, but he also loves and died to form this new community called his church. And our growing love for it. This is why we talk so much about community. This is not fluffy, hold hands, kumbaya. This is the very reputation of our God. Our growing love for one another in this community, as broken as it is, it is so important because God stakes his very reputation upon that. This is not on the screen, but familiar verse from John 13, 34. It says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know how I used to read that when I was a little simpler in brain? It's like, oh yeah, that's like that campfire kind of love after a retreat when you're all feeling great about yourself. Hold hands, hug, share a, a s'more, and just say, I love you so much. I love you so much. Isn't God great? They didn't know it yet because it, ha- it hadn't happened yet. But when he's saying, just as I have loved you, you're also to love one another. He's saying, Love one another like I love you because I love you and you're all about to betray me. Y'all about to run your own way. Y'all about to deny me. Y'all about to be selfish and deny that you ever knew me. You want to know how you're supposed to love one another? Like that. You love people who've spoken ill of you. You love people who've made your reputation lower than the dirt. You love people who've made your life harder. Let's just be honest. We do that to one another Why? Because that's the way Jesus loves us. He didn't love us when we deserved it. He loved us in spite of sometimes what we give. And he gave his life in sacrifice, in radical, Christ-like love. So I know this sounds ridiculous, but I'm inviting you to a kind of community where I'm saying, I know this is the opposite of what church is supposed to say. I know I'm, at this point I'm supposed to say, so join this community where everyone's going to make your life so much better and show you deep love. I'm actually inviting you, hey, join this community where people might really complicate your life. Welcome to the village family where you might meet some people and say, why am I here again? I, I know it sounds ridiculous. And I know for some of you, you're wounded. Because you've tried, whether here or someone else, you've tried to give yourself in community and it's blown up in your face. Some of you, you're skeptical because you've tried to put yourself out there and all it does is giving you more hurt. So what I'm saying here sounds ridiculous, but that's why they say the gospel is a message for fools. Because it's saying that is going to be the very message that brings us back to why we need Jesus every day. Not just that one day to get into heaven, but every day because we have a hard time loving people, especially hard people. Amen? But Jesus does that with us. That's why we come to him. And that's why we have this table. And if you're a Christian, during this next time when we respond to the word, I'm going to ask you, Come to this table. Take a piece of that wafer. Remember the broken body of Jesus torn apart on a cross. Dip it in the cup. You can come up both aisles. Remember the blood of Jesus that was shed so you can be made right with God. But guys, can I ask you, don't come to the table lightly. 
Don't come to the table lightly, but examine your heart. Are you harboring anger, bitterness, frustration? Have you held yourself off from others, especially in the community of Christ? If so, bring that to God and let him give you more grace. And come up and remember the grace that you have already been given in Jesus. If you're not a Christian, could I invite you to also come up? But first, know this Jesus who gave his life for you. Though you went every possible way. And maybe you're even sitting here and thinking, what the heck am I doing in a church? And it's recognizing, why are we all here? Because we've discovered the Savior who loves us even when we sometimes don't give him reason to. And he just keeps welcoming us back and forgiving us and giving us more grace. We want you to be coming into the family. We want you to be invited into that family that doesn't care about national borders and skin pigmentation and gender, but calls us one family together because of Jesus. We want you as part of that as well. Can I ask you to stand with me? I'm going to pray, and as I pray... Let me ask you again, don't rush up to the table, but take some time to let the Lord examine your heart. And if if you are harboring anything, bring that to the Lord before you come up. But let's pray as God reveals the inner things within our heart that sometimes only the hardest people can bring out. Let that lead you to the grace of this amazing Savior. Lord, I pray for this church family. I thank you for them. And I thank you, Lord, in so many ways we are so wounded and broken. So many of us have a hard time trusting because we've tried in our own ways. And Lord, you keep inviting us back to the miraculous nature of this grace that says you keep pouring it out even when we have not done what we're supposed to because you believe that we will continue to grow into the people we're to be. Lord, would we be able to do the same thing with one another? Help us to be more generous with grace here in Village Church. Forgive me, Lord, that I hold grudges. Forgive me that I keep a long record of wrongs. Lord, I need more grace. Our church needs more grace so that we can love the way you have loved because your reputation is at stake. As the world would see a radical kind of love, not just love for those who treat us good, but love for those who don't because of what Jesus has done. So draw us to yourself, Lord. Invite us to your grace.